Well, friends, it's good to be with you tonight. How are we doing? We good? Doing all right? I want to begin, uh, it's been a couple weeks uh, since I've been with you at the gathering, so I want to begin with just a question tonight. Um, what are we after? What are we trying to do here at the gathering in this series on a vision of worship? There's a couple things, just to kind of front load the service, to kind of get our minds back into what we are doing. The first thing that I'm after for you, on your behalf, for my behalf, is simply to give you a vision of worship. Visions are important. It's easy to take for granted what we do all the time. The coming to chapel, coming to gathering, going to church, week in, week out. You know, we do it. We go through the motions. But why are we doing this? And what is happening while we're doing it? I want us to pay attention to the drama, to the glory of what we are doing in here. Because what we are doing in here is participating with something that's going on up there. I want to prepare you for eternity. Our goal in campus ministry is our mission is to help you to be lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. Not just followers while you're here at college. Yes, we want that. But we want to prepare you, form you with the imagination, with the mental capacity, with the rigor, with the soul, with the grit to go out north, south, east, and west to wherever God's calling you to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, you don't just need to know more, you need to see more. Stanley Hauerwas, a great ethicist of our day, somebody we should pay attention to, says that if you want to change somebody's mind, don't give them an argument, give them a picture. And that's what we're after. I want to give you a picture of worship. The second thing that I'm after in our time is repetition and patience. Here's a pro tip of life. The most important things we do over and over and over again. If it's important, we do it again and again and again and again. You don't just do it once. My son, Trigvi Jr., is 10 years old. He's just starting to enter that age of like he's too cool to care for his dad, which is great fun for me because it's really easy to exploit. I am the car driver on the way to school Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, when we're about at 16th Street and River, we go through the light, I lean over to my son. I says, you know what? He says, what? I love you. I like, I know. You keep telling me that every day. <laughs> I know, and I'm going to keep telling you because I love you. You don't say, when you love someone, you don't just say it once. You say it again and again and again and again, because here's the fundamental truth I know that he doesn't know, that there's going to be a day and I'm not there. There's going to be a day when he's not going to feel loved, and it's going to be easy to forget. And he's going to need to know that that repetition has defined his life, that he has people, a father who loves him. Repetition is what we're after, and we've been in repetition in Revelations 4 and 5. Keep going back to the same text. Because here's another pro tip for the Christian life, that the Christian life cannot be lived on adrenaline. It's patient. It takes time. And patience is countercultural. Everyone's in a hurry. Everyone wants to have the answer right now. 
But spiritual growth is like a tree. It's planted in soil, and it grows millimeter by millimeter deeper and deeper, thicker and thicker, taller and taller, but it's patient. If you look at a tree, it doesn't look like anything's going on, but something's going on. It's growing just like you. And so we've been in this series in Revelations 4 and 5 intentionally, intentionally going over and over and over again the same text and also to invite us into a different kind of spirituality where we have the permission to grow like trees patiently and slowly. Just in case you were wondering, it's not like I don't have anything else to say, but I want to keep going back to the same text because the text The Bible is a bush that burns and is never consumed. And one of the things that I hope that you get is that even when we go back to the same text again and again and again, there's something new we can glean, that we never exhaust its meaning. And so that as you launch into your life, wherever God's going to call you, you know you can take this book with you and it will continue to speak a fresh word because you learned here that the Bible's truth and meaning can never be summed up in one sermon one gathering, one chapel, one Bible study. It continues to speak. And so tonight, I want to continue along that series in Revelations 4 and 5. Now, we've been in this. Uh, we've been off it for a couple weeks. But for those of you who have been with me, I want, uh, I want you to fill in the, the gaps, if possible. And try to make this as interactive as possible, okay? So when I point at you, I want you to, I want you to shout out what word you think is there, okay? You ready? We'll see how we're gonna do. See how I'm gonna do. Revelations four and five, from the book that we love, the bush that burns and is never consumed, from the imagination of the poet, the theologian, the pastor, St. John. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit. And there in heaven stood a with one seated on the and the one seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian. And around the are 24 and seated on the are 24 elders dressed in white robes. Ah, with golden crowns on their heads and coming from the throne are flashes of, not Jesus, lightning. (laughs) And rumbling and peals of thunder and in front of the burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God, Jesus, there you go, okay. And in front of the, there's something like a sea of, like, yes, around the, And on each side of the are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a, the second living creature is like a, the third living creature's got the, yes, that's right, face like a human face. And the fourth living creature is like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with how many wings? Six wings are full of eyes all around and inside and day and night without ceasing they sing. If you know it, say it with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Oh, mm, yeah. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the 
who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their before the throne. Oh yeah, singing. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Mm, yeah. Chapter five now, chapter five now, hang in y'all. And then I saw in the right hand of the one who was seated on the, a scroll written on the inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And then, and then, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. You see, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw between the, and the four living creatures and among the, a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed from God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one who is seated on the and to the be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. Amen. And the elders, oh, the elders, they fell down and worshiped. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Revelations 4 and 5. We've been in it all semester intentionally to groove this like the best music pressed into vinyl. I want this to get into your soul so that when... There will be a day when you need it. You can put the needle down and you can see again what you are doing in worship so that the thing you do every single week in here and out there, you will not forget that you are participating in something larger than yourself. Right now, the reality is that there is a heaven and at the center of that heaven is a magnificent worship service. We've been thinking about a vision of worship, a vision that you can take with you into your whole life. And each week we've been breaking this down so that we can just see different parts of it. Kind of take it out and look at under a sun like a diamond in the light with all of its complexities and wonder. We've seen how worship centers around a throne. At the center of reality, this is John's poetic way of saying that there is a God who is in charge, who is sovereign. 
Around that throne is a great gathering. 24 elders, old 12 apostles, 12 patriarchs, old Israel, the new church, all of it pressing in towards the throne. Four living creatures, the ox, the lion, the eagle, the one with the human face, the best and brightest of all creation is pressing in towards the throne. The, the myriad of the angels are pressing in towards the throne. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth is pressing in towards the throne. Worship in heaven is a great gathering with a great diversity. But in Jesus, the great diversity finds its harmony. We've seen how worship sings. That when around the throne there's a great gathering, that great gathering cannot help but stay silent. It erupts from their toes to their tongue because if they don't, the rocks will cry out. Five different hymns. The, the worship people are a singing people, which is why we sing in here. And last week with Jennifer, we heard that worship prays. They see the lamb and they come in and the four living creatures and the elders are holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That in worship, your prayers and my prayers, the prayers of the world, are gathered before the living God. The reality right now is Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf, on our behalf of the world. In worship, we pray because Jesus is praying. And tonight, what I want us to explore is that worship proclaims that when you go to worship, you should hear someone proclaim, but not just proclaim, but proclaim something specific. Proclaim good news. At the heart of worship, at the heart of what we are trying to do here, is point you to a reality that is so overwhelming that every fear, every anxiety, every fundamental thing that keeps you from God is taken away because God has taken it away. When you come into worship, you should hear good news. And that's what I hear in this vision that John gives the church, that John gives you and me. He gives us a vision that proclaims good news. And that's at the heart of Christian worship. One of my theological heroes was a man named P.T. Forsyth. Modern preaching in the modern mind, he wrote this book and began with these words. It, it is perhaps an overbold beginning, but I will venture to say with its preaching, Christianity stands or falls. It's a bold statement. But he's saying something about proclamation and proclaiming good news that is essential, essential for the church around the world. That if that proclamation does not happen, the church will fail, the church will fall. That the church, the people of God, need to hear it again and again and again, a proclamation of good news. And that is what we experience in John's Revelation in four and five. There is a particular moment, a human moment, in this vision that I keep coming back to again and again that reminds me what we're doing in here is important. There's that moment at the beginning of chapter five. Did you feel the, the, the dynamics shift? He sees that someone on the throne is holding a scroll. And then he hears a mighty angel proclaiming, who can open the scroll? But no one can. It's sealed with seven seals. 
There's no one in heaven. There's no one on earth. There's no one under the earth. There's no one. There's no one that can look into that scroll and tell us what's inside. And John begins to weep. And then there's this elder that comes. And he shares with us one of the most beautiful sermons in all of Scripture. I just said this downstairs to um, some of my friends, but it's one of the most beautiful because it's one of the shortest. But the elder comes and simply says this. He says, do not weep. You see, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. It's a particular human moment where someone is distraught and somebody notices and pays attention and has enough courage to risk and come and share simple good news, the good news of the gospel, who is Jesus. The gospel is not an abstract concept. The gospel is a person who is alive. He was dead, but now he is alive. He is risen, he is ascended, and he is at the right hand of God, the Father, right now interceding for us. And because he is interceding, there is nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth that can ever separate us from his love. That's Romans 8. There's a particular human moment in this story that reminds us that worship is about proclamation. And it begins with the scroll. The scroll is a metaphor for the scriptures. In the Old Testament, scrolls were how the people of God worshiped in the synagogue. They would unroll the Torah. They would read the scroll again and again. At the center of John's vision, he's reminding us that at the center of God is his word. His word that is written down. His word that is revealed and that is shared with us. God is a speaking God, and he speaks to us through the book that we love, the bush that burns and is never consumed. The people of God are a people of the book. We are a people of the scroll. T.F. Torrance, one of the great theologians, says, this is the central message of this chapter. In spite of the monstrous and demonic upheaval of the, upheaval of the world, in spite of the fact that the whole world seems to have broken loose from God in our time, in spite of the unbelievable disorder and ruthless sway of evil, there is a book in heaven carefully and decisively written by the hand of God about the destiny of the world. There is order behind the chaos. There is plan behind the confusion. There is a book of human destiny sealed and firm in the right hand of God. God still holds the world in his hand and he will not be thwarted. His purpose will be and actually is being fulfilled here and now. At the center of everything, God is holding a book, a scroll. And this is why we read scripture in church. It's essential, it's essential for our life as Christians. And I worry sometimes that the Bible has lost some of its significance for us. There's a lot of interest in being spiritual. There's a lot of interest in the Enneagram, but there's little interest sometimes in scripture. At the heart of this vision of worship is a vision of scripture. And scripture is the lens by which we see reality there in heaven, seated on the throne, he was holding a scroll sealed with seven seals. Scripture is one of the most magnificent gifts that God gives us. 
I love this quote by John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion where he writes, the power which is peculiar to scripture is clear from the fact that of human writings, however artfully polished, there is none capable of affecting us at all comparably. Read the Methyses and Cicero, read Plato, Aristotle, and others of that tribe, and they will, I admit, allure you, delight you, move you, and rapture you in wonderful measure. But betake yourself from them to this sacred reading, and then in spite of yourself, so deeply will they affect you, so penetrate your heart, so fix itself in your very marrow, that compared with its deep impression, such vigor as the orators and philosophers have will nearly vanish. Consequently, it is easy to see that the sacred scriptures, which so far surpass all gifts and graces of human endeavor, breathe something of God. They breathe something of God. God breathes in the mystery of his divine will through this book. It's our power, it's our refuge. It's where we discover the promise. It's where we are reminded again, not only who we are, but whose we are. And in this particular moment, he sees a scroll, he sees scripture, and John begins to weep. He weeps, why? What's going on? No one can read it. No one can get inside and discover its meaning. It's locked away. John's on the outside looking in. And there's nothing worse than that, is there? To show up and feel like you don't fit in or you don't belong. You can't get at the meaning. I remember my first year in college, I was a freshman. That's what we call first year in college. And I went to a lecture on the problem of evil. I was a freshman. I thought I was really smart because I had done well in high school. And I got to college and I was a serious Christian. And by serious, I, was, I did my devos. I, I memorized uh, Bible verses off a navigator's pack and I would, I would memorize those Bible verses like bullets that I would put in like a six shooter. I just, another one and another one. I just ingrained those in. I was a serious Christian. I thought I knew a lot. So I thought I would go to this lecture and, see what these fancy thinkers had to say. So I showed up, and all of a sudden I found myself in the deep end of the pool. I didn't know that I had been swimming in the shallow end. But all of a sudden, I wasn't in the shallow end anymore. They were using words I didn't understand. Eschatology, theodicy, they were using arguments that I couldn't follow along with. And I did what um, most freshmen do at that time. I, I looked like I did. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And occasionally I would let out a kind of, mm, mm, like I was following along. But inside I was like, huh, what? I don't get it, I'm lost. I spent an hour and a half listening to this lecture and I have to this day no idea what they were talking about. There came to this moment after the lecture um, uh, of a Q&A, and I remember my a professor that I was taking, Don Wakeham, uh, and he asked a question to the person who was speaking, a man named John Stackhouse, and the question ignited a counter-response that was quick and fast. 
And immediately the two of them were in this 15-minute robust argument, and it was not nice. These people were going at each other. These were brothers in Christ, I think, who were (laughs) absolutely at each other's throat. And I couldn't understand why. Something was at stake, and I didn't understand it. Something important was going on. They weren't trying to be arrogant. They weren't trying to be cool. Something at stake was happening in that conversation that mattered. It mattered for them. It mattered for the church. It it mattered for truth. And I remember going back to my dorm room that night. I was freshman. And I remember sitting down and I began to weep. I wept because, not because I was stupid, but because I was ignorant. I didn't know the words, but I could know them if I did the work. I I, I wept because I felt I didn't know how to get inside of what was happening here. There was more going on than what I had access to, and I needed help. I didn't know how to break those seals I didn't know how to get in the scroll. I didn't know how to participate. And I wept because I knew in that moment that that was the beginning of my education as a Christian. I had a heart for God, that was true. But in that moment, I had to make a decision whether I would convert my mind. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience. But for me, It was decisive. I remember the next uh, week I went to go see my professor and ask his help. Could you help me understand what was happening? And he gave me a couple things and it didn't happen all at once, but slowly I began to circle the words I didn't understand. I began to look them up in a dictionary. I began to get an education so that one day I might be able to enter into a conversation and not feel lost. There's nothing worse than feeling left out or that you don't belong or you don't fit in or you show up to a place like the gathering or chapel or church and you look around and you say, what about me? Do I belong here? Have you ever felt that way? Gone into a place and just felt out of place? Wouldn't it be nice if someone came up and spoke to you? That's what happens in this vision the elder comes and speaks to him. This is what preaching is supposed to do. That's what P.T. Forsyth says why preaching is essential for the church. It's, it's when the preacher, the elder, comes and says, hey, you belong. Don't worry. There's good news. Yes, you belong here. The elder wakes us up, points us to an alternative reality. And that's why preaching is so essential for the church and why some of you may be called to that work someday. All of us, I think, are called to that work every day. Eugene Peterson says on preaching, scripture read and preached discovers that Christ the Lamb reveals the meaning of my life and fulfills my destiny. Without preaching, no matter how splendid the throne and how numerous the elders and creatures, there's no assurance that I'm included. And so the consequence is despair. Enough to make a person weep. 
It is not enough to see the glorious throne, hear the wondrous songs, and realize the vast inclusions. If I do not discover that they include me, I will not praise but weep. If I cannot see myself among those who throw their crowns, not crows, crowns in reckless joy shouting, I can only hang my head and weep. We need someone to come and notice and to pay attention. And that's what I love about this elder. He's, he's, he's caught up in this great worship service. He's one of the 12 sitting on the thrones around the throne. And yet he notices, he pays attention of someone who's crying, who's not doing well. And I think that's a lesson of compassion. That sometimes what we need to do is look around and notice maybe someone who needs a word. And then we need to speak. The elder dares to speak a word. He doesn't stay silent. And this word is healing. When he speaks, it's one of the most breathtaking moments in this, in this uh, story for me, this vision. Our words matter a lot. One of my favorite poets is a man named Shazla Milosh. He wrote a poem called Task. Let me see if I can pull it up. He says, I think I would fulfill my life only if I brought myself to make a public confession, revealing a sham, myself and of my epoch. We were permitted to shriek in the tongue of dwarves and demons, but pure and generous words were forbidden under so stiff a penalty that whoever dared to pronounce one considered themselves a lost soul. We're permitted to shriek in the tongue of dwarves and demons. We're permitted to be critical, to be cynical, and to talk behind each other's back. We're, we're permitted, even encouraged, to, uh, to speak mean in such a way that it makes you sound clever or intelligent. But sometimes what we most need, if we're honest, is somebody who will notice us and offer a pure and generous word. And that's what the elder does. The elder shows up, and he speaks. But he doesn't just speak, he speaks good news. The elder speaks a pure and generous word by pointing our attention to the pure and generous word, to the Lamb of God. And that's what good preaching does. He gets the attention off of himself, away from his feelings, and onto another, namely Jesus Christ. And when he does that, he tells us the fundamental truth of the gospel. Do not weep. You don't need to be sad anymore. God has included you. Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He has conquered. That is at the heart of the gospel. And what he is talking about when he says conquered is the cross. And by conquering, God does not use our methods of conquering. He doesn't use tanks and armies. He doesn't use violence, at least towards others. He allows violence to happen to himself. He gives up all power so that all might have life through him. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. That enmity between humanity and God is forever, once, in the, once and for all on the cross, taken away. He has conquered, and he is able to now break the seals and look inside and say to you, you belong. Your name is written in the book of life with my own blood. God conquered. It is finished. You see, God's love does not win. God's love won. It is done. 
now for you, once and for all, by the blood of Christ on the cross. And because God has overcome in Christ, he, the line of the tribe of Judah, is strong enough to break the seals no one else can break. He speaks the good news, the good news that we all need to hear, that Jesus has conquered, that he can open the scroll, and that you are included. Friends, the key to understanding scripture is to understand Jesus. Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah who is also the lamb of God. He is the key by which you can unpack all of scripture's meaning. If you don't know Jesus, you will never understand the scripture. You will never be able to properly understand the Old Testament or the New Testament. The key to interpreting scripture is the lion who is also the lamb. This is the whole point of the scripture. And the elder is pointing us not only to the truth that God has conquered, he's pointing us to the truth by which we must discern all reality to Jesus. And that is important for you to take with you when you leave Hope College. Because there will be a day when you're not here. There's going to be a day when you need to go find a church. There's going to be a day when you need to go find your people. There's going to be a day when you get a job, when you show up to colleagues, and they're going to need to know some good news. And when that day comes, know that you have conquered because Jesus has conquered. When that day comes, I want to encourage you to pay attention. I want you to encourage you to find a people that you can worship with and who will speak to you but speak good news, to speak pure and generous words. I want to encourage you when that day comes, and maybe that day is today, that when you go back to your cottage or your dorm, that you might have the courage to share, to speak, to speak good news, just like the elder, to someone who needs to hear it, the good news that Jesus has conquered now and forever. Amen? This table that we love is a reminder of that truth. After the elder says, do not be afraid, see the line of the tribe of Judah has conquered, he looks and he sees a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. And the four living creatures and the elders, they fall down before the lamb. This table is a table of the lamb. The line of heaven becomes the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And here, my friends, we are nourished. Here, my friends, God speaks his word to us in such a way that we can feast on its life. So in that spirit, I'd invite you to come and pray with me.